As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? We're going to put on the helmet. Okay. How does this feel? Feels good. Cool. I mean, I wouldn't go on a jog with it. Probably uh, shouldn't. Yeah. It's, uh, it's... Yeah, it, it feels good. Feels good? Yeah. Balanced? Yep. All right, I'm going to turn off the light. we got to yes, yes, tune some lasers. Okay. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. This week, guys... I made myself a guinea pig, and it involved putting a futuristic-looking helmet on my head to image my brain activity in real time. Now, the company that developed this invention is called Kernel, which was founded by Brian Johnson, and Johnson sold his company Braintree, which owned Venmo, to PayPal back in 2013 for about $800 million dollars. And so he was suddenly wildly wealthy, trying to figure out what to do with the rest of his life. And for the past five years, he has been on a quixotic quest. And that is to shrink an fMRI machine. And you know the ones I'm talking about. You've seen the medical dramas where somebody has something really wrong with them. And so the doctors put them in these giant donut-shaped noisy machines so doctors can see their insides. Colonel has effectively taken that room-sized thing and shrunk it down to the size of a helmet. And so it can analyze your brain in real time. Um, Basically, take a video recording of your brain as you're doing certain functions. And so I flew down last week to the headquarters near LA to see it for myself. And to show me how it worked, they strapped it on my noggin and had me play a video game. And then the task itself is a bunch of different dots will populate in this field of view. And your job is to shoot and click as many of them as you can. And this is that's also timed. Yes. So the whole thing takes five minutes. All right, Danny, I'm going to leave the room so you feel less pressure on performance. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm already already relaxed. (laughs) All right. All right, thanks. So I won't spoil how it went, but listen to the end, and I'll let you know. You can probably guess. But what you're going to hear right now is the conversation I had with Johnson in his office right after I did that demo. So just to lay out what he has done over the past years, he spent nearly $50 million of his own money to develop this product. So we talk about why and what he thinks this will do for all of us. And spoiler alert, he has some very, very ambitious goals. They're actually not far off from what some others are doing and what has become really this mini industry of brain-computer interfaces. And these include the likes of 
Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's startup that wants to implant chips in our brains to kind of merge us with AI, or another company, Synchron. They're seeking to help severely disabled people regain function again by implanting brain implants. Kernel is very different in that it is non-invasive. You can think of it almost like a Fitbit for the brain. And the way Johnson sees it, this is going to catalyze a whole new kind of category and type of product. He thinks his vision is making this as kind of ubiquitous as the smartphone. We'll all have it, we'll all be measuring our brains, and this will lead to a whole new world of products, services, experiences, um, and just a deeper understanding of what is going on with our brain. So it's a really interesting idea and conversation. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So with that, I will hand you over to my conversation with Brian Johnson, the founder of Kernel. And do stick around till the end. I'll let you know what the Kernel flow told me about my gray matter. Enjoy. So I just had this big old thing on my head. I know this is a short question with a long answer. Can you explain what flow is, what I just had on my head, and what it took to create it and what it does? It is measuring blood oxygenation of your brain. As your neurons fire, they ask for and utilize oxygen, and we're looking at the oxygenation and deoxygenation. So it's a similar signal to fMRI, and it was extraordinarily hard to build. In fact, when I started the company in 2016, the objective was to figure out if there was a technology in the world that could make neural measurement mainstream, what would it be? And we assessed every technology that exists in the, in the world. We pieced together commercial systems. We put together our own bench top. We acquired data and analyzed the paths. And then we would look at all the various elements of supply chain. Like, are there chip manufacturers that make these things? Others? Could we make the pieces of the cost and the weight that we wanted. And so what we've essentially done could be compared to when PCs emerged after the mainframes. We had the same level of miniaturization. So for example, the system you wore a few minutes ago is 10,000 times lower volume per channel than existing commercial systems to give you an idea on the kind of scale of how much we've miniaturized. So what I was just experiencing, if I was, and I don't know if an analog existed, but if it did, what what did it look like or what it, would it look like? Would it just be a room yeah. effectively? The, the closest thing is an fMRI. Right, right, okay. So a few million dollars, room size system. The fMRI is looking at, there's a few differences. One, it's big and it's expensive. Yeah. And you're in a coffin-like environment with loud noises. Right, 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 yes. But it looks at your entire brain. It really creates, it generates stunning images of the brain. So with flow, it's a helmet you have on your head. It's substantially lower cost and you can do it anywhere. We're looking at the cortex only. So we're not looking at deep structures of the brain. And that's the trade-off you need to make with these technologies. What we think, however, is it hits the right balance of brain data quality, accessibility, cost, and it will meet the criteria of making neural measurement mainstream. Right. So the obvious question is, why neural measurement? Why start a company making neural measurement mainstream? And I think you've spent something like $100 million-ish from memory from our last conversation. I'll give you an example that is not related to brain interfaces that makes measurement maybe understandable. So when, when you buy an appliance for your home, 
you don't wonder whether the appliance is going to fit the door. Correct. It's built on these certain standards. If you buy a car, you don't wonder whether it's going to fit in the lanes yep. of society. And we create these engineering standards in society because we say if you can set up a standard to measure a given thing, then you can set it up as a known for everybody and everyone then builds on that system and it enables a lot of progression. So if you take it to a health reference, you can say, I can measure my cholesterol or my blood glucose or my steps or my sleep and I have a baseline number and then I can test things to get that. One of the only things in the known universe that we cannot measure in, on a routine basis is our brain and our minds. We don't know how to assess, is this good for our brains or bad for our brain? And that's what we're trying to do is introduce measurement that allows us to have a common vernacular and use numbers to understand what is good and what is bad for our brains, or at least quantify it and start having, making those value judgments. So after you sell Braintree, you're suddenly very wealthy and you're like, you can do anything in the world. Why this? I mean, I understand the, the, what you just said, but why is this the thing you chose? There's a simple answer than a complex answer. Simple first. I had chronic depression for 10 years. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It's the worst thing in existence. My stepfather is in late stages of cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. And my father struggled with addiction when I was a kid. So I've, I've been around mental challenges yeah. for a long time. And they are debilitating for everybody. And so having something that would give further insight into what we could do to improve our mental state is really compelling to me. Second is if you say, this is more philosophical, if you imagine what will existence look like in the year 2300 or 2400 or 2500? Mm -hmm. And one of the most compelling pathways of development going on in the world right now is compounded returns. And so if you think about, for example, when the bubonic plague happened in the 14th century, cutting edge science were, was prayer circles. You fast forward a couple hundred years and we can sequence the genome of coronavirus in 66 yeah. days and do an MRA, mRNA vaccine. That represents compounded gains where you have this accumulation effect. And the same is true with technology with the increase of a trillion fold compute power in the past couple of decades. One of the only things that is not improving at a compounded rate is humans. If you take away the systems that are improving at compounded rates, our technology, our institutions, and science, we're kind of the same we were a couple hundred or even thousand years ago. The lizard brain still kind of rules us yes. in a way. Yeah. So if you think, how could we potentially imagine a future where we can log systematic progress in ourselves and society as a whole? It begins with measurement. And a lot of people think about brain interfaces as a vector for control, that I'm going to text from my brain or I'm going to change a channel from my brain, not as a measurement device. But what, going back to the measurement example, if you can measure the brain, you introduce it into the formal engineering practices of society. And so a lot of people at this moment in time are jaded with technology because we've had, yeah. we've had some time where big technology companies, it's been do whatever you can up into the line of getting away with it. And then if you cross that line, then apologize and hope it's all okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. needs to change. And we need, to, we need to orient things so that it's focused on the individual improving and there's not this unbalanced relationship. But putting that aside for a minute, if we just say, let's imagine people are going to, companies and individuals are going to play with fairness, where there's not going to be this unhealthy relationship. 
by measuring the brain, you take the first step of formally introducing engineering to a path of improvement. And if we do these things today, we try to create habits. Right? We teach our children how to create habits. We teach people how to create certain thought patterns. And so it's not entirely foreign to us. It's just a way to do it with the help of the other things we're building. But to me, it really is about the future of being human and the future of intelligence, which is the only game that is really going on right now on planet Earth is like this trajectory of how we're going to imagine ourselves evolving. And is there an analog here? Because I'm thinking about you know the way we think about you mentioned mental health earlier. It's now kind of accepted in a way that this is something that requires attention. That there's like you know well-known people can talk about it. It's accepted. Mm -hmm. It's kind of become this thing that we start to have a shared vocabulary and a deeper understanding about it. Is that what are we kind of a, from where you sit at the beginning of that journey when it comes to understanding the brain and then kind of all the things that would come from that? Yes. And even understanding, even if I, you, you and I use the same word and we say happiness, mm -hmm. your version of happiness and my version of happiness are going to be dramatically different. And so the usage of words is a coarse attempt at trying to explain what we're really experiencing internally. And neural measurement is a next level quantitative ability to do that. You and I don't talk about our feelings as it relates to our cholesterol. We have numbers. We also don't talk about feelings of our blood glucose. It's just a number. And so it, it enables us to use numbers as the primary mode of communication in how we understand these things. And that's what I hope we could get at is, is formally introduce engineering in how we imagine ourselves existing. I mean, for example, when I was depressed, I tried everything known to humans and I just, I had nothing. And I look back at that and it was, it feels so primitive that I had no ability to measure anything in my brain about what I was trying other than my subjective feelings. So I hope that this really sparks an entire ecosystem of people that will take an interest in measurement and then intervention and then continually build. Yeah, because I have some friends who struggle with depression, anxiety, et cetera, and they're like, all right, well, I'm taking Paxil now. Mm -hmm. uh, I was given a dose. It completely messed me up. Mm -hmm. And then I was given a lower dose and that wasn't enough. And mm -hmm. it's just like, it's, I mean, part of this is just kind of modern medicine in a way, but it's also, it was very, um, it's like you're kind of flying blind and it's like the repercussions are pretty serious. Very serious. I mean, to use your example, it's like going to the doctor and they assess you with high cholesterol and the doctor throws you a bottle of pills and it's like, good, good luck. luck, Danny. <laughs> like, you know, just like take as much until you feel good. Like we would say it's absurd, Yeah. you know, but we do that with our brain. And so it really, it, it because we don't have familiarity with measurement of our brain, it's hard to inhabit the space to think, ah, oh, we could measure it. We could get numbers. We could actually stop using words. So yeah, there's, there's strong potential here. So what I just demoed, what is the state of that as a product in terms of like, you've been working on this uh, since 2016, you're making it now. Is it prototypes? How out in the world is it? You know, kind of where are you in terms of it as a product in the market? Yeah, we have a few dozen prototype systems out there in the world with academics and also uh, commercial for-profit companies that have been using it for a wide range of things from meditation to concussion detection and stroke and social neuroscience. So a wide range of things that people are using. We also have several partnerships. So one is with uh, Cybin. We're looking at psychedelics. So it's, it's a hot topic. And you know, if we could start measuring that, it would be potentially an additive thing for the entire field. We have a partnership with AimLab, the game you just played, where their question is how best to improve a gamer's ability. And having insight into the brain could be helpful for that. So that's like helping, basically coaching. Yes. Effectively. 
coaching and training. Yeah. And, and insights and, you know, like we know when we get data upon ourselves, we improve the intervention that's closed with passion. Uh, we have several other partnerships that we will be announcing soon. Basically, we are trying to create markers of the brain that are universally helpful. So we want to reduce the complexity to, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. Is this good for my brain or is this bad for my brain? Kind of the emojification of the brain. Yes, exactly. Now, obviously, answers are going to be nuanced and more complex, but we're trying to reduce it to that of, you know, if I spend two hours a day playing this gaming routine, what does that do for my brain? Is it like me eating vegetables every day or is it atrophy in my brain? Is it creating accelerating aging in my brain? And then the same question for everything I do. Right, right. And so when we go back to 2016, what, how, did the, how did you start? What did the first thing look like? And what have you had to do from just a product development and science point of view to get to where you are? And I know that's probably a very big question because there's probably lots of steps. But We needed a team of about 100 people. We needed to file around 200 patents. We needed to become world experts in over 12 different disciplines. And we needed to do it all through COVID. Right. So easy. <laughs> I'm glad we're here today. <laughs> right. Right. I asked this question a lot for this, on this pod, but was there ever a moment where you're like, this isn't going to work. I should throw in the towel. This is a bad idea. Or it was a, maybe not a bad idea, but it's just not, this is not the thing. Can you reframe that question to say, was there ever a moment where you said, this is going to work? I can reframe it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. th this, this path has been... 99% discouraging and 1% encouraging. So why did you keep going? I grew up reading biographies and I found it to be the most interesting way for me to learn about history mm. through the lens of people who are living it. And I admire endeavors that in their time and place, they look at the horizon of human opportunity, of the thing that could be attempted that's just on the horizon of possibility and they choose to do that thing despite the odds. And I think that what we've chosen is on the horizon of possibility. I don't think by any means it's a guarantee. Yeah. And so in this time and place, uh, if we are successful, it would alter how we understand ourselves and each other. It would change the, the ecosystems of, of Earth, of uh, our, our collective uh, future. I think right. it would be that big. I have a big question, but before that, what's the biography? Is there one that stuck with you? Ernest Shackleton's. Oh. Yeah, 1914 to 1916. Yeah. What's the uh, the name of the ship? I have this book. Endurance. The Endurance. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I have an original copy of his. They see the books on the second shelf over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those, those are, are some old looking books. Yeah, those are original. No way. Yeah. Original what? Of his, the books he wrote about the expedition. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. You know, he, he never made it. Yeah, I know. And so uh, to me, it, uh, it's not a story about success. It's a story about what one does on the journey after right. identifying that point on the horizon. Right. So when we think about where this is now, what is the vision five years from now, 10 years from now? If all goes swimmingly, keep in mind that it's been 99% pain and doubt and like, is this going to work? <laughs> now that you've actually built this thing, what is the vision? How do you see this playing out in like the most ideal yeah. way? First step would be that we have markers of the brain that businesses use and they say, 
you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And then the nuances, so companies could use this to improve their products, iterate, discover, it's a tool they use in-house. The second would be that individuals say, this is a really exciting situation because there's dozens of companies that are offering all kinds of applications that are going to help me improve my life. And so people start wanting to have them at home because they find that measurement at home a few times a week significantly helps them in their life. And then three is that the architecture of society from school to our self-improvement to our relationships, to politics, economics has an underlying structure of engineering that we are no longer blind to what is going on inside of our brain, our minds. We have data illumination and that we do things because it's scientifically sensible to do it. That's a, that's a vast departure from where we are today. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the, if that were to happen, we, I think we'd look back and say, it would make this day and age look primitive yeah. in comparison. So what does that future look like though? So is this like, I have this in my house? Like, does everybody have one in their house? Like, what does it look like? Like, how much does it cost? Because if you're talking about re-engineering humanity effectively and how we operate and how we interact with each other obviously you need something that's a commodity you need something that everybody can have access to or at least you know a huge swathe of the population yeah we with volume we think we can get down to a smartphone price right yeah and i mean if you think one of the things that's deceptive about this is that you and i both know that we can't close our eyes and self-introspect and determine what our blood glucose levels are or our cholesterol you have to measure it yeah but because we experience consciousness and because we can have meta-awareness, we falsely conclude that that is a sensor for our brains. We falsely conclude that if there's something going on inside of my brain, my self-awareness would capture that. And so people would have these in their homes because we're detecting things about their brain that they can't do from their own self-awareness. And right now, that is a challenge for most people to imagine because they assume so strongly that they already have the appropriate sensor system, which is not true. And so once we have these measurement vectors, I think people will find it compelling to, just like we have frequencies where we brush our teeth twice daily, it would be a, like a, a routine with the brain a few times a week, and you're measuring a few dozen things. And so what does it cost now? Or is it even, I mean, are you just giving this away? I imagine because you've spent so much to build it. I don't know if there is like a price right now. The price of the system is really less relevant than the ability to generate insights. And so with, with volume, we, we are targeting 2024 for consumer adoption, and we wouldn't need to have the full head coverage system like you had on today. Mm. We could maybe have uh, five different modules on the prefrontal cortex or the regions of the brain the person wants, and they can, in, they can move them around wherever they want for, for brain coverage. I see. But we could just take a, a smaller version of that and make it consumer friendly. I mean, we talked a little bit about it in a previous conversation, but like, say, social media, for example. Mm -hmm. You strap this on and you go into Instagram and, you know, the, like the FOMO machine. Yeah. What can you measure? In other words, what can you glean from that? Because I can look at Instagram for an hour and be like, maybe I feel worse about myself <laughs> at the end of it. If I had that on my head, what else can I glean from that? Or what kind of action point could I take from that? Yeah. This technology has been around for, 20 plus years, and there's thousands and thousands of research papers that have been done, and it's been proven to measure dozens of cognitive functions. 
And so we're not starting from zero here. There's a lot of literature. So I guess the short answer is we can measure a lot of things. Also, if you were to pose the question, if you heard someone speak 40 years ago, what could you deduce from hearing their voice? You could say, well, gender, potentially age, potentially country or state of origin, depending upon. And then as time passed, we figured out that the algorithms could also tease out diagnosing mental illness. For example, Reagan's mental illness, right. diagnosable via algorithms of speech detection. So when you get into a scenario where you can have large data sets collected over a lot of people, the fun of this is that we probably don't know of most of the value that's going to happen right? as any of these kind of technologies. And so we have imaginations on how you'd hook it up and your experience in Instagram, what kinds of things you might experience. But my best guess is our guesses would be wrong and that the insights will be probably a lot different. Right. And so do you envision like a whole ecosystem of companies basically building on a, on a foundation of neural measurement? Yes. I'm just trying to figure out, so you have kind of the dis new disruptors and also like Nike mm -hmm. or Walmart. Do you see that kind of whole industries reorienting themselves around this idea that, okay, we can actually measure, and I don't know exactly what you're measuring, but we can measure things the way we couldn't before and tune our offering accordingly. Yeah. The opportunity is for industries to find the relevant niche. So if in the athletic performance world of Nike and others, if they found that certain training exercises proved to be more beneficial than others, yeah. or if they found that certain meditative practices were better. So people will use these things for the objectives they already have and become better at them because of measurement. And then new other people will find new avenues of creating new products, but it's going to create uh, an entirely new ecosystem of scientific exploration and interventions. So in, after the five-year plan, we discussed before is it really opens up to this entire ecosystem of interventions where anything from lifestyle routines of sleep and mm. uh, to food and supplements to uh, pharmacology to all these things and so we think that's probably the biggest opportunity where we think right now the the neuroimaging technology is the primary value creation of what we've done but in five years from now we think the neural technology will just blend to the background and the value creation will be on the interventions we create for improving people. Right. So of all of those things, is there a killer app? You know, you have a history of like consumer products. And obviously you need something that kind of, that is just like an aha for people. Like, of course I'm going to use it for this. Yeah. Do you have a vision for what that might be for this? Measurement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's a little counterintuitive to the, mm. to the question. But if, you, but if you think about it, I mean, we live within measurement. We look at the speedometer when we're driving. We want to know the temperature outside. We want to know numbers all the time about so many things. Yeah. And the killer app is measurement on the brain because having measurement is going to help you live a better life. Uh, whether that be if we're looking at potentially cognitive decline indicators yeah. to performance improvement, to better relationships, to it you know, becoming a weather forecaster for how you're going to experience life at some future point. That was a key thing for me is when I started Kernel, that's entirely the, the sole thought process that everyone kept on delivering is killer app, killer app, killer app. But it, it trains your mind to focus on the individual and it blinded the obvious conclusion. It's all about measurement. And that yeah. was the breakaway here at Kernel is once we've, once we figured that out, the commercialization path opened up for us.
have you talked to the guys at Fitbit or Apple Watch? Because you know they they're kind of you know forerunners to kind of what you're doing. They are. Have you talked to them and gleaned any lessons? You know, other things they did do that they shouldn't, or vice versa, in terms of getting something out there in the world and getting people excited about it. Yes, we have many friends in the wearable worlds, yeah. and and most many of them are partners of ours because we're combining. We are creating an ecosystem where everyone can bring their data and combine it with their brain data, and we will help make sense of it. Right. So wearables are a nice companion to what we're doing. Right. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Were you able to, um, or did you try to get venture capitalists to invest in this? Did you, is this all your money thus far? Or, because you're talking about kind of the obsession with product market fit and all of these things. What you're doing is different through that lens. Have you got others to invest or have you tried? I funded the company for the first four years myself. Then we raised capital last year right. from some wonderful investors. And we'll be raising money again in the next year. And so what will this look like in 10 years? I was just wearing the big helmet that's plugged into the computer, I think. Yes. We're making pretty dramatic improvements. So the next iteration of our interface weighs, I think, uh, 27% less. Oh, wow. Uh, we still haven't finalized the design, but we're making big jumps. Uh, the next version of our ASIC, our detector, we've made dramatic improvements. So the improvement curve of the technologies we're working with are on the global supply chain of electronics. And so we're reaping all the benefits and so we are right in the middle of it. And this, it's one of the reasons why I shift. Initially, I looked at it, invasive technology, and I decided to move away from it for several reasons. But one is in, when you're doing invasive technology, you're kind of off on your own. You have to invent everything. Sorry, just to pause. You're we're talking about invasive technology. You're talking about people like Neuralink, Synchron. That's right. Things actually putting things inside your brain. That's right. Right, which <laughs> I wrote about this recently, and it was a line I was quite pleased with. <laughs> I said, as, as barriers to entry go, brain surgery is quite high as for a like, consumer product. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know Neuralink is working on a, a brain surgery robot. I know it's like microsurgery, but it's still surgery. It's surgery. And there's good applications for the technology they're building. You know, Among the reasons why I didn't continue on that path was I wanted something that would scale to the mainstream as fast as possible. And being on the global supply chain of electronics was a, a really good place to be. We get so many freebies of everyone else pouring billions and billions in R&D. And so I think that the technology will get smaller. It will be lighter, be higher signal versus, uh, versus noise. Yeah, I just think the improvements will just follow that same curve. And the focus will become less on the technology and more on the interventions. Are you using this regularly for yourself? Yes. I've participated in every single study the company's ever done. Have you got anything out of there? You're like, oh, I didn't know that, or that's interesting, or I'm going to change pattern X or behavior Y because... Yeah, I'll give you an example. We did a study looking at sleep and willpower. And so we, we had, I had several wearables that I, was, I had on simultaneously. We were comparing the quality. And we found that when I was doing this task of willpower the following day... What is the task? I so um, you're looking at a screen yep. and... Either a green leaf pops up or red flowers. 
And so when the green leaf pops up, you hit the space bar. When red pops up, don't do anything. So it's like green, green, green. Yeah, exactly. You so have you, have to, you have to stop yourself. You have to stop yourself. Right. And we found a strong correlation in my deep sleep, total sleep, and sleep latency, the amount of time it took me to go to bed with my willpower. So in other words, the more sleep you got, the better you were at exercising willpower. Exactly. So if you translate that into a, a real world scenario, so let's say it's seven o'clock at night, I'm sitting in front of a, a sugar cookie. I don't want to eat it because I know if I do, it's going to wreck my sleep and it's going to be contrary to my real goals. The likelihood of me succeeding in that moment or failing, I could directly tie to those numbers. And so we saw the area of my brain uh, and its activity as it related to those variables. And so I found that connection and I found the area of my brain that was either active or inactive. And so this study was just on a, a beta system where we were just doing bring up. But it was an interesting finding, again, to help build intuitions on, on what exact things am I doing in my life that affect what I do the following day. And I start making these pattern matches. And this is where I think these intuitions start coming into play, where it's hard right now to imagine, why would I ever want to measure my brain a few times a week? But you start just a few of these examples, and people are able to start improving their lives in ways they couldn't before, of connecting the dots and piecing things together, and small improvements start being made across every aspect of their life. Well, it's funny because th you think about that like on the weekends, I'll be like, ah, oh, it's the end of the week. Maybe I'll just have like a nice glass of whiskey. Yeah. Probably shouldn't, but I do it anyway. You do it anyway. And yeah, if I'm doing the glass of whiskey, like I might as well. Yeah. Maybe have something to eat just to kind of, or maybe I'll have another glass of whiskey or whatever, or <laughs> maybe and then I'll watch two hours of TV and stay up later than I should, et cetera, et cetera. And I know all of these things intuitively they are like, yeah. Probably shouldn't do that. It would be interesting kind of to what you're saying. If I knew exactly what was happening, if I knew kind of to what degree that was screwing me up the next day or whatever, because I, I guess if you, the more you measure, the more it's kind of, you can't deny it at that point. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but there's also just a question of human behavior. I mean, people know they shouldn't eat cheeseburgers. We know all about cholesterol and there's always a line in, in and out yeah. at McDonald's. Yeah, and, and people do interesting things to stop themselves from doing things they know they're going to do. I mean, this goes back to the Odyssey, you know, being tied to the mast. And so, and also people creating cookie jars that have locks, time locks on them. So they literally cannot be opened. That's a thing? Yeah. yeah. I did not know that. So, I mean, it's, it's, a fun, it's interesting, but I guess what it points to is that we all identify with there's different versions of ourselves. Some are naughty. Some are nice. And we want the help of the infrastructure around us, people around us and our technology and our tools to be better. Mm. And so, again, if we build this ecosystem on trust, so it's not a situation where a company is trying to take advantage of the person. It is built on trust for the improvement of the person. And they can then truly trust that situation to say, I'm trying to do the following thing. And I'm interested in leveraging all the things around me to do that. That's, again, the introduction of just engineering me to be a better person. I don't want to face down in the scenario you talked about, do I drink the whiskey and do the following things or not? I don't want that decision because I know I'm going to lose most of the time. And so if it really, if you start thinking about this on a multi-decade long scale and how we're going to evolve to become better individually into a species, like to really, like, really put the point at the spot on the horizon 
where we start having the same kind of ambitions about ourselves as we do our technology. Like, why do we look at our technology and we have no limits in mind of what it can become? Yet when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we just accept status quo. Like, how does that happen? Where's the ambition for ourselves? And that's where I think this leads. And it's, of course, a baby step, but that's the level of ambition I think we can have in this time and place. How much of this is about what just the current state of technology in the technology industry? Because you've, you've kind of alluded to a couple of times about how, you know, like make things that help people rather than take advantage of them, yeah. for example. And of course, there's a whole narrative and it's based in more and more data that, you know, social media, the big tech companies in various different ways are playing kind of on our base instincts. They are. They have been. And I say it for two reasons. One is to signal of the kind of company we are and our intentions. Because most people have an association with brain interfaces that is either neutral or slightly negative. And in part because of Black Mirror and because of movies, where most of these things have been put into a context of bad things are not are happening to people who do this. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, we need to dig ourselves out of a negative association hole and create a neutral or a positive relationship. And so we think it's really important that we do things correctly in terms of giving people control of their data and making sure the relationship is fair because we don't want to feed into the narrative that's been feeding big tech for the past couple of decades. We don't want that baggage and that we're not them. Yeah. And the secondarily is we need to create new associations of what neural measurement is, why it would be helpful to us individually and collectively and what we may want to do with it. And so we really have the responsibility, I guess the opportunity really of not just building technology and finding the appropriate markets, but it's a reorientation for people to form a new relationship with this technology. So it's, Kernel's a big lift, like on every single layer, it's been one of the most difficult companies in the, in the world I can imagine to build. <laughs> it sounds like it. Because you're also, yeah, you're targeting some pretty big, entrenched forces and mm -hmm. in a way human nature and our kind of lizard brain and the brain like the most complex form of intelligence in the known universe and yeah so it's layered and complex i can see why you like shackleton <laughs> <laughs> you know have you read the book i have not i've read i read one of the books about it and that kind of stuck with me yeah. it's just such, such an incredible story i mean you read it and it's like there's no way something else could go wrong. It's like, oh, you're kidding me. Like, that's how Kernel has felt on many layers, levels. It just, it's been pretty tough. And so where are you now? Are you kind of past that stage or is that too, is, are you tempting fate saying that? We are. We actually, the technology is built. It works. We're very happy with it. It's on its own improvement curve. So we're past that stage. And now our focus is entirely on the first few measurements that would be examples mm. of what companies will use to evaluate and improve their products and services. I mean, you can imagine a scenario where you are buying a service from a company and they are trying to convince you to use their product. And they're trying to convince you by saying, you know, this product has been validated by Kernel Flow. Like fair trade coffee. That's right. Like this is backed by science and we've, right. we've done analysis. And like, so you can imagine that companies will want to use that as a competitive advantage for why you should choose them over someone else. I can see like a brain safe 
branding. Like this is a brain safe product or a brain augmentary product for education, for example. That's right. And if, and if something is bad for the brain, then it doesn't mean that people won't buy it because people still drink alcohol and people still smoke and there's known negative health effects for doing those things and people can do them. Yeah. It's just known. And so there will be more transparency in the marketplace for effect on brain. I know we're running short on time, so I'll let you go, I promise. But when you started this project, were all of these ideals like in the mix or was it like, let me just start with, see if we can actually make the science work? Because what you're talking about, as you say, it's like such a heavy lift is what you're talking about. Did you start there? I did. I mean, it was basically, you know, after Braintree Venmo, it was either go on a Shackleton-like voyage. Literally. Yeah, literally. <laughs> or you know, go to the mountains and have a small farm. Right. But in the middle, just didn't make sense to me. And I suppose that's maybe more a reflection of my personality. Did you try the farm thing? <laughs> uh, I grew up on a farm. My grandfather raised me for a significant portion of my childhood. I found it to be one of the most enjoyable ways to spend life. Really? Yeah. Because my wife always talks about it. She's like, oh, I would like to get a farm at some point. But I can't see her getting up at 4 a.m. or me getting up for at 4 a.m., for example, <laughs> to milk a cow or to feed the chickens or whatever, especially after that whiskey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I imagine that, I guess, if you get into a different rhythm of life, it's a different rhythm. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose you know, life was pretty simple. My grandpa and I worked side by side, and we did all the chores together. And I remember it as being incredibly pleasant. Where was that? In Utah. Right. And being an adult and being in the modern world, it's complex. Like everyone's upset, <laughs> everyone's mad at each other. Especially these days. And it's uh, it's pretty tough. And I guess when I try to muster the most sober assessment I can of our time and place, it feels really rough mm. out there. And it also feels like we could do better, like significantly better as a species. And why not try? Yeah. And so. Yeah, this is my shot at trying to make a contribution. The team here, there's 100 people here. They feel the same. They've all joined with their own version of motivation, but it is a an extremely passionate group of people that are pursuing it. And it was only with this level of tenaciousness that they've been able to continue like this. Everyone has gone through the same journey, and yeah. it's a remarkable crew, and I'm so happy that I get to be with them. What if it doesn't work? What if you know, the lizard brain and big tech win. Will you go do the farm then? You know, the more I live, the less I find forming hard conclusions to be worthwhile. The moment we are in right now has a depth and breadth to it that I think exceeds our imagination. And I think the most surprising twists and turns could be just over the horizon, defy all of our expectations and I don't think that my intuitions are adequate to assess, uh, to make these value judgments. And I just think it's the moat we have right now is very special and it's bigger than we realize. And it's our moment to get ourselves property oriented and work towards it. You're talking about kernel or society wide. Society. Yeah. 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 And neural measurement is a part of it. Yeah, but yeah. There's so many of the pieces of this thing. But what if we could drum up a new level of uh, motivation? to do this. As I look at my kids, you know, we map out the possible futures they could they could have. How old are they? 18, 16 and 11. Oh wow. 12 now. 
Right. But you know, like what kind of world would we be proud of leaving for them? Yeah. And gives way to thinking about a lot of possibilities. For sure. It's fascinating. And I wish you luck. I mean, <laughs> well, you're on you're in your endurance journey, but it sounds like you're not gonna freeze to death. So, <laughs> so you're happier past that part. <laughs> Well, I'd definitely come back and see how things are going and I'd be fascinated to see how... Yeah, I hope you will. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. So that was my conversation with Brian. And before we go, I promised that I'd let you know what showed up in my brain as I played that video game. But my data was still processing by the time I left the office, so I hopped on the phone a couple days later with Catherine Perdue. She's Colonel's Head of Neuroscience to talk about my results. So this is our brief conversation about what she saw and also what it all means, you know, what conclusions you can draw or cannot, which is illuminating both, as I say, in what it shows and also the limits of what we can interpret from this type of data. Anyhow, here is my conversation with Catherine Perdue as she explains this 3D model of my brain, uh, which she shows me on the screen, and all the parts that lit up during this experiment. Here she is kind of activation a lot um, and it is tends to be uh, activation in this area is related to executive functioning planning and decision making so that's the part where you're like trying to decide where you're going to click next um, that's related to this kind of brain right. activity and then moving around a little bit so um, this here is in the kind of left motor and um, premotor cortex. So that's related to uh, when you move your right hand, um, we see activity in this area. In my so left, it, in the left part of my brain. Yeah, it crosses over actually. Um, just it's a thing that happens or it's just right. how we're wired. So it's actually, it shows up in the opposite side of your head. So that's what we see. So you were doing more probably, um, you have to have finer motor control uh, when you were doing that, like uh, moving around um, instead right. of just when you And then the other types of activity that we see. So here in the back of the head, this is related to visual processing and especially um, motion processing. So that's where this is happening. And there's more of that when you're clicking around instead of when you're just in the same spot. And then the last area is, so I have seen this activity before. To be totally honest, I'm not exactly sure how I would interpret this, but the best interpretation that I have is that it's related to uncertainty. So not quite knowing where that's going to show up, the more surprised or uncertain you are, apparently the more activity Mm. you see in this brain region. Um, So that is, again, it happens more in that, uh, when the the dots are showing at at any Right. So... The thing I'm trying to figure out is so like this is like a cool image of my brain and presumably you have this like as a in video form as well, right? Things lighting up and kind of like a, that's kind of one of the things that the system does, right? Is recording kind of over time. Yes, that's right. This is a condensed comparison over time, but we do have the full movie right. over time. Right, okay. Um, and so the one thing I'm trying to figure out, so I see, you know, these parts of the brain were lit up, at the, you know, depending on what I was doing. What I'm trying to figure out is like, so what conclusions can we glean from that? Because when I was speaking with Brian, for example, he's just like, you know, are things good, quote unquote, good for you or bad for you? Are they good for your brain? Or are they bad for your brain? And when you see certain parts lit up, how do you draw value judgment out of what you're seeing? You know, like, how do you kind of turn this data, this raw, what we're looking at here into something that can kind of 
then lead to some kind of value judgment or different action or whatever it may be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think in the context of this particular setup, like uh, what the whole um, study is designed around is understanding expertise and the way that it shows up in your brain. So for that, we expect that people who are more expert actually have lower brain activity. Their brain doesn't have to work as hard to do a particular, to Mm. perform at a particular level. Um, So that's one thing that we see as being something that you get from measuring the brain that you don't get from another way. At least I would hope that this would be used to kind of tailor training or understand learning and be able to be like, okay, your brain knows how to do this. We need to make it harder. Or like, oh, this has like your brain is still working really hard to do this. Like maybe we need to do some more fundamentals or something mm. like that. So this it's a it's a model of that kind of thing. So this is showing like particular regions, but the way that I think about it is more like, do you have to work harder <laughs> or less over time? And can we measure and uh, change things on that axis? And so when we're thinking about, you know, kind of drawing this out, say in a few years, you know, I have a kernel in my house mm-hmm. um, and I want to like really quantify what is happening when a certain friend is over or <laughs> when I'm spending an hour on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, and I get an image like this and it's like, well, it's lighting up here, it's lighting up there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so then Mm. that's my question is like, how do we start to kind of turn just this raw data of like, oh, that's interesting. There's these bits lit up into, well, what that is telling you is X or Y. Yeah, Yeah, I I think that that is one of the most interesting and challenging parts of this whole thing, because um, I was in academia for a long time. If you're in academia, if you have a pretty map like this, you are done. Like, yeah. But when it comes to thinking of a commercial application, just as you're saying, you are not done. Like, you need to be thinking about like how are people going to use this, um, how are people going to find this valuable. So yeah, I have a few like things that I would love to see, and I think you're you're bringing up like a really interesting point about like is this healthy for me or is it not? Which might mm. like from for me as I'm hearing like how would I expect to see that in the brain? Like oh maybe I would see um, more of a stress response in your brain when you have yeah. a certain friend over or maybe there's a different part of your brain but it would be more about using these areas of the brain and their patterns um, to give you feedback or to tailor it to you or to it it does need to be condensed further into something that's actionable. Right, but and so in other words, we don't, we're not, we're not there yet. This is about just building up data to start recognizing patterns. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we're we're not yet at the point where it's like a consumer level applicant, like it's ready for you in your house. Um, it's instead uh, where we are gathering data about how these patterns of brain activity are linked to these other things that are actionable. Right. And I guess that's, I mean, and that kind of speaks to uh, one of the points about the brain, I would guess, is that, you know, you were in academia, um, lots of people in academia studying the brain in one form or another, and it does still feel kind of like this black box, like we're still just scratching the surface. I mean, is that fair when we're thinking about kind of, okay, we're creating this new device, which can give us a lot more insights into a lot more people and just start building a real big database, but it's also like we're still just kind of figuring things out and this is going to help us do that. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that we're still figuring it out. Like, and one thing that I think a lot about at Colonel, which I didn't worry about uh, in academia, is in academia, you are trying to get to this map, but also like, it's usually a population level thing, right? It's less around this question of like, what can I tell you about your own brain that's actionable? So getting all the way to like, uh, thinking about questions like how much data do you need in order to be like, sure, when you're giving someone some actionable information, like that's an open question. Uh, I think there are lots of open questions, just as you're saying about um, what happens in the brain uh, during less controlled situations. Like the video game is, it's pretty fun, but compared to most academic neuroscience, it's pretty uncontrolled. So uh, just like thinking about, okay, but even that is compared to regular life, it's very controlled. Mm -hmm. So then how do we take these steps to look at the brain in situations that are more relevant to how people actually live? There's right. still a lot that needs to be done. Right. And so for me, so having, I imagine you've seen lots of these different brain maps of people playing this game. <laughs> Is there yeah. anything that you can glean from what you saw that is interesting or different or kind of like this is an insight, you know, from what you saw, uh, from what, you know, my brain, brain activity was? Oh, good question. It's a little bit dangerous territory for scientists because I don't have like a statistically significant, or you know how scientists yeah. like to have a statistically significant thing. But yeah, so usually uh, I would say like this pattern of activation is very similar to patterns that we often see. So I like didn't see anything that I was like, oh, I don't know about that. Um, so I, I think that's generally good. We do see that... Uh, would you say you play a lot of video games? That's my question. Uh, uh, zero. Yeah. Okay. I don't, um, so we do see a lot of that uh, left that motor activation. It tends to be in people who are not gamers, so like myself as well, um, because they don't have the practice of like, you know, clicking around. So they have to like use more of their brain in order to do that planning. Right. So, so you that, could that is- you could have like, I mean, not as a scientist, but just as kind of seeing a lot of this and knowing what you know, like you could probably have right. hazarded a guess that like, I'm not a gamer just by looking yes. at my brain. Right. I would have guessed that. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a little weird. I find like um, people are very personal about their brain or, you know, um, this is why I didn't like want to just say because you feel like, oh, your brain is yourself, right? Like, and there's a lot of um, thought about like, oh, what can people read about my brain? So this is why I like to be like, oh, we can't read your thoughts. I can't like do that. I can hazard a guess that maybe you don't play as many video games as some people, but like that's as like strong as I would get. Right, 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 right. And that is it. That is it for me this week. That's all the time we have. I want to thank Brian. I want to thank Catherine and everybody at Colonel who kind of, you know, um, let me do my little brain experiment this week, which is really interesting. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for the little donations, little tips here and there. Always appreciated uh, through the ACAST creator feature and that's it i'm also be writing about this this week so if you want to see more uh about this subject area do pick up the times this weekend the sunday times that is um you can also find me on twitter at danny fortson email me danny.fortson at sunday hyphen times.co.uk that is it for me this week have a fabulous weekend and we'll chat to you soon bye-bye
train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.